0: This is Dustin, and you found The Kook Jester Show. Hello, and welcome to Kook Jester, everybody. My guest is actor John Emmett Tracy. His most recent role sees him antagonizing the Dutton family on the modern day Western series Yellowstone, which you can stream directly on Amazon Prime. We dig into what motivates his character Ellis Steele, the eternal struggle, between artistic creation and interpretation and what he means by embracing your stadium moment. A special thanks to Sam Aiken from the Children's Heart Network for making this interview happen. If you like what we're doing at Kook Jester, please subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform. And if you love this interview with John, please share it with your friends and your family. So here is John Emmett Tracy. Thank you for listening, enjoy. Hi, John Emmett Tracy. Welcome to the Kook Jester Show. I am very happy that you are here. I'm very happy too. Thanks, Dustin. Perhaps as a starting off point, you and I know each other from the Children's Heart Network, and I have seen you perform as the master of ceremonies at many of these galas throughout the years. As a first question, and if I could ask you to switch from the gala crowd to perhaps say a high school or a college graduation class, you have been asked to be the keynote speaker to impart some words of wisdom. Uh So has there been a piece of advice which has been pivotal in how you've directed your career or is there something that you've learned along the way that you think would be helpful for these eager young minds?
1: Hmm,
0: wow, okay. We're going right in, aren't we? To the Yes. <laughs> to the heavy. Uh, great. Yeah. Well, no, we can start uh, off with something light. Like, do you like no, mango? No. So we can start there.
1: Yeah. What's your favorite color? I thought we were going to yeah. ease in. No. You know, like anybody, life has been so full of those things. And I think a lot of these uh, bits of advice or, you know, directional changes that people help you with or advise you toward, they seem to resonate with me in the moment when you need them. And sometimes they don't stay with me forever. But I suppose, I think a lot about um, my father, who was an extremely talented athlete when he was young, and he's from the East Coast. And he was scouted by a couple of professional baseball teams, a couple of major league baseball teams, and was really uh, excited about it. But also, I think the, the prospect of it really made him nervous. And he started to... I guess, doubt his abilities. And, you know, he second guessed whether or not he could compete at that level. And he used to tell us this, you know, quite dramatic cinematic story about actually going down for tryouts in in New York City and um, standing in front of the stadium. And he said he had his cleats in one hand and his bat in the other and his glove under his arm. And he said he just stared up at this and he he changed his mind. He thought, "Oh, I can't, I'm not going to be able to pull this off. And he he got back in his car and drove home. And from the moment we could talk, I r- remember him telling us, if we have a dream, if, if life is telling us that there's something we're meant to do, to at least try it, you know, to at least give yeah. yourself the opportunity to find out. And it really, really resonated with me. And, you know, nobody in my family comes from performing arts. And, it, you know, where I come from, we didn't know anybody involved in it. It, it wasn't a really... <laughs> tried and true path for anybody in my family or anybody in my life. So when I suddenly announced and I was quite young at the time that this is what I do. And, and this is who I'm going to be, you'd expect the normal amount of (laughs) pushback from grownups saying, Oh, you know, it's not a very stable, you know, business, or I never got any of that. Once in a while, a well-meaning you know, relative of some kind might say something like that. Oh, it's a tough business. But in general, especially from my parents and my grandparents, they, it was very encouraging. And that particular story, my dad, it just rings in my ears, you know, and mm-hmm. it even rings in my ears when the journey is difficult. You know, when things get difficult, yes. I think this is a standing in front of the stadium moment for me. And I can either walk away from this. And I don't mean walk away from the career, but walk away from this opportunity or a role may come up that is really challenging for some reason or other. And I sort of think about it as a stadium moment. And I, I, I really owe that to him. And I'm, I'm grateful
0: that he used to, you know, not only encourage us, but would instill
1: that kind of thinking in us, you know.
0: Just from that story, and probably from what little I know about the film and stage and movie world, is that I could imagine there would be a lot of ups and downs. Can you take me into the casting room you're auditioning for a role, do they usually have an idea of a look that they're going for is like a physical build, you know, Mm. cut of the jaw, or is there more of an essence? And like, how do you adapt based on that once you figure it out?
1: Well, it's such a great question. And it's also a complex one because, you know, I think whenever I've asked myself or whenever somebody else asks me something along these lines, what are producers looking for? What are casting directors or directors, what are they looking for? I think the answer is how many of them are there? Because I think every single person has their own perspective and their own set of priorities and what they see it as. I sort of look at the work that all visual and and, and performing storytellers do as interpretive first and creative second. So, you know, the writer is interpreting something from the world, something from life, and they're creating this thing. Uh, The director's... And producers, they certainly are creative and they and they build a world or they sort of create a tone or a through line, but they're also interpreting first. And I think as an actor, same for me, I come in, you know, sometimes they've given me so much to interpret and I get to create just a little bit um, mm-hmm. to, to sort of complete that circle. And other times they give you just a, a little. I was in a film uh, a couple of years ago that was completely improvised. So the director would You know, tell us our character names and our relationships, and this scene has got to be about you firing this person, or you know, some scenario. And then there was no script, and so the creative side was much, much bigger in that than a a normal job where you've got the words already written for you. So the reason I went down that road about interpretive versus creative is that everyone interprets different. Some casting directors or directors in a in a casting room will have a really specific idea in their mind of of what this person has to look like, and Others won't, you know, others will. And it's the same thing once you get a job and you're on set. There are directors that come in with really specific ideas and they say, OK, what we're going to do is you're going to start here. We're going to have you move over here. You'll sit at this chair, but only for a moment. And then what we want is we want to have a sort of a mysterious arc that comes over the that's a lot to interpret. And, and I really love that. I don't mind either version of this. And others will come into the rehearsal and go, OK, just show it to me and they'll sort of allow the actors to find it and then they will work around that and so it's such a it's such a great question but a difficult one to answer because i i think it depends on who's sitting on the other side of that table
0: as a performer do you have that experience on the improv stage or stand up I don't have experience with either of those things, <laughs> um, although
1: I'm a fan of both of those things. I'm a huge fan of of improv and of stand-up comedy. There is a certain amount of improv involved. I, I grew up in theater, you know, live theater, and I was a magician as a child. So I did a lot of, you know, in the moment working with an audience, and you're always improvising around what happens with them. And, and in theater, you know, it's it's a set script until it isn't. Something will go wrong or something will distract from the audience or, you know, it's a, it's a moving, living kind of changing thing and it's different every night. So I think you build a, a bit of an improvisational muscle, I suppose, just being in live environments. And even as we, we you talked about, uh, you know, being at the gala, you know, emceeing a live event like that is very similar. You know, you're sort of trying to go with what happens in the room around you. So. Every actor has hundreds of stories of times when things went wrong in a live performance and how they got out of it and and what they did to, you know, work, work around it. And I've definitely been in those positions where, oh boy, you know, I remember working with an older actor who was playing my grandfather and he used to come in and he would get all the lines right, but he wouldn't say them in the order that the playwright had intended. So sometimes he would start giving me lines from the end of the play, you know. And I would say, okay, well, listen, grandpa, let's get back to uh, this conversation about mom. Um, you know, <laughs> I would try to, I would try to steer him back. Those things can be really uh,
0: exciting in a stressful way. You decided that acting was a, your chosen path at a young age. Was there a role which defined you where you were no longer an actor slash model slash waiter slash like, and you just embraced it and this was the path you were going to do?
1: Hmm. No, there wasn't a role. There wasn't a specific role. There was more it had more to do with, you know, my mother was really one of the things I remember her encouraging the most in us is creativity. She used to say, Oh, you're you're a creative thinker. You're you you're very creative, you know, to not just to me, but to all her kids and, and her nieces and nephews. She was very encouraging that way. And and so imagination and creativity were were a big part of our childhood and my mother was a great storyteller, you know, bedtime stories. And I really loved being part of, you know, what I call the once upon a time of life. I, You know, this and humans have been doing it since the beginning, you know, sitting around a campfire saying, OK, listen, everybody, this is what happened. And for me, it was never a, a draw towards getting paid attention to. If I think about it too much, it can, you know, derail me that so many people are looking at you or something like that, because we were. Paid attention to as kids, it wasn't like that. It was more being part of the once upon a time, mm-hmm. and I think I just figured out early that this was the side of that that I could contribute the most to being flexible and playing different people. And I certainly did the the childhood theater in the basement with my siblings, you know, and we would create stories. And I even had a teacher that used to allow me to have every Friday afternoon to put on a performance for my class because she recognized in me. This was uh, fifth grade. She recognized in me this performer's instinct or something. And I would sort of coax my friends to be in these performances. And and I would Mm -hmm. have to, I'd bribe them with candy so they would stay in for recess to rehearse with me. And so it wasn't a role. It was just more, I really loved the idea of Once Upon a Time. And and how can I spend as much of my time as possible doing that
0: and being around that? That's really what it was for me. So, was actually getting up there and performing ever. A problem for you? Like was there ever stage fright, or was it just something you were drawn to do as if to perform and tell a story and be that once upon a time?
1: It wasn't really a problem for me. Um I remember being really little, I don't remember how old it was, and getting asked to get up in church and read sort of passages from you know from the the Bible and and you know, I think a lot of the people a lot of the priests used to tell my parents, I think we've got a future priest here. Well, I, I really just liked, you know, the good material to read. I liked, liked yeah. the script and I liked the, the the storytelling side of it. And it was a, it was a captive audience. So that was nice. I, I didn't have that sort of, um, as you get older, you start to, you know, I have friends who are amazing singers. My, my daughter is an amazing singer and her ear just naturally finds notes. I've never had that ability, <laughs> but I think you don't realize you're good at it until you start to Get older, and people go, "Hey, you're, you're a really good singer." You know, you, I, you you start to hear that, and it wasn't until I started getting comments like that that were similar to your question. Do you get nervous up there? Are you afraid mm-hmm. to? It, it never occurred to me to be nervous for some reason. I can't really explain. Maybe, maybe there's a, a chip missing or something. I'm not really sure. But it wasn't until people started telling me why aren't you? Yeah, I don't know. Why aren't you nervous? That I started going, "Oh, should I be? Maybe I should. <laughs> maybe I should be. Maybe I should be thinking about this." So. Did I, Dustin, did I answer the question? I'm trying to remember it now.
0: My my, my answer. Yeah, yes, no, it was the, uh, it was about like, did you ever have any, I guess it was anxieties or fear performing, or was it just something that came naturally? And I think that was a great answer. It's more for me, things like this, where I'm me, I'm not a shy person, but I'm a
1: private person. I think that's Mm -hmm. the best way to put it. So when it's interviews or or even, you know, and seeing something where I'm really saying, hello, my name is, and then I say my name afterwards, <laughs> that's really not um, natural to me. But, um, okay. well, I mean, one-on-one and, and chatting with people, of course it is, but, yeah. but publicly standing up and being myself is not quite the same feeling. I do that a lot, but I really prefer to kind of help a director and a writer tell a story by slotting in and going, okay, I know exactly what this character needs. And I can, I can spin it this way if you want, or I can spin it the other way, depending on what, you know, your vision is. But I really prefer being part of the thing and saying, my name is <laughs> whoever I happen to be playing at the time. I don't know how that sounds. Like I'm perfectly comfortable as me in my life. It's just maybe not natural for me to be super, uh, Hey everybody, it's me. You know, <laughs> at parties, I don't do that. I don't Yeah. Kind of,
0: all right, everyone gather around so I can tell stories. <laughs> I, that's not really my, uh, my yeah. thing. Yeah. So the character almost gives you a bit of armor in a way. Yeah.
1: It's funny. I don't think
0: about it that way either. If yeah. there's this
1: weird yeah. kind of like I heard it described once as a self-hypnosis or a self-delusion. I don't feel like a guy hiding behind anything. I just kind of I feel like I in ideal circumstances it doesn't it doesn't mean this always works yeah. because there are times when suddenly it's me sitting there feeling stupid. Yeah. But but in an ideal situation you sort of believe for a little while that you're really trying to convince this other person of this thing, or you really believe that you that this is your child, even though it's a, another professional actor that you've mm-hmm. just been introduced to an hour earlier, or you believe that you're in love with this other person. Uh, I know that sounds funny, because you don't you don't keep believing it after they say cut, because that would be strange. You go right back to being co-workers. But I don't know, there's a little switch that hopefully we can flip. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's something like that, where I don't feel like I'm sort of hiding behind anything. I feel like I'm trying to forget myself and trying to believe that these are my circumstances. I guess that's the best attempt to mumble my way okay. through an answer.
0: So this one may be a, a strange follow-up, but in that idea, there's a this is not medical advice for anybody, but I heard on another interview where this medical doctor was he was talking about all the experiences that we want to access. Like we Mm. taking psychedelics or MDMA or whatever it is. And his thought was that it, it isn't necessary because those receptors or those pathways are already there. We can access those without mm. medical medical means or self-medication or whatever it is. Wow. When you're asked to be a character who's completely outside of who you are, mm-hmm. and you have to dial up a certain personality trait or tamp one down, does it give you that confidence to show you that, yes, this is something I want to improve about myself or work on because oh. you've seen it's possible? Wow, that's
1: a that's an excellent, excellent question. And, and that's one I've never been asked before. Hmm. I think like anybody, I'm constantly influenced in ways that i don't even perceive you know every everything that happens day to day to all of us teaches (laughs) us something about ourselves and it teaches us something about other people and i would guess you know i might have to really think about that but i would guess that the same is true of the work i do and the work i do you know i sometimes think it would be a good idea to rename acting and use the word empathizing you know, I think the real job is to empathize with this person who at this moment is only just on a page, to empathize with their circumstances, and not just not just to understand them or sympathize with them, but to actually take them on, you know, and to be mm-hmm. willing to cry this person's tears or to, you know, suffer their, their pains or to revel in their joys and, and victories. I, I think empathizing is something that actors have to do by nature, because you can't come in even, you know, I play a lot of villains, I guess you'd call them. I like to use the word misunderstood. uh, But uh, (laughs) anyways, no, uh, I play a lot of antagonists, let's say that. And I can't kind of come into these jobs and judge these people, I have to really try to figure out what is making them pursue this goal in such a destructive way, or such a, you know, selfish way, or whatever it is. And I have to find a reason to believe that it's true. And I believe it's true for me as this character for a few minutes until they say cut. So I suppose probably that has developed in me, or maybe maybe that's what led me to this. I'm not really sure which came first, mm-hmm. but I, I'm having a hard time thinking of an actual personality or character trait or a worldview trait that I have borrowed from a character and taken away with me. I I, I can't think mm-hmm. of anything. I'm sure as soon as we're done chatting today, I'll think of four, but I can't name one. I just know that um, I try to, I try to embrace them when I'm doing it.
0: So you just mentioned that you play a lot of misunderstood characters, mm-hmm. villains, <laughs> bad yes. guys. <laughs> yes. So thank you. I like that word. Uh, every once in a while, my, wife will have a dream where i'm in it and being less than an ideal husband and <laughs> she w- she wakes up the next morning yeah. and i get like this little cold sensation from her i'm just like what happened yeah. She's like, oh, and then she it in. oh i dream you know i had a dream and you did this 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 and this i'm like oh fantastic great start I, to the day yeah i was gonna say you're lucky you don't get hit the cold shoulders one thing but you <laughs> yeah. know they'll wake up in the middle of the night and smack you on the shoulder like how could you yeah Yeah. I'm like, what, what? I was sleeping, but when when your wife sees you in a role where you have to be despicable or awful and you walk back through the door, does she see that guy or does she see John? Is there like an adjustment period for her?
1: Well, it's making me think of a couple of things. One is my wife, it's, you know, it's the family business. So she's, she's involved in many ways, you know, and a lot of times a, a role will come in or, Say an audition or something, and she'll look at it and she'll sort of look for the <laughs> the villainous qualities, and, and then her enthusiasm will. She'll go, oh great, you know, you kill her at the end, perfect for you, or something like that, yeah. you know. She, yeah. And and or but if it says you know something that I like to believe I am, you know, a family man or a, a funny dad or whatever, however I actually self-identify, she reads it and says, oh, <laughs> it's anyways, yeah. it's kind of a little joke we have. I mean, obviously she knows I can play, and I certainly do play. You know, nice guys uh, in my career too, but no, I don't think because I'm not really the kind of actor to sort of bring that stuff home with me. But what I will tell you happens to me sometimes. Oh, I wish I'd thought of this ahead of time, and I could have found the name of this this researcher. But there was somebody that I read about a few years ago who was doing research into what actors do and comparing it to dreams. Funny enough, you've mm-hmm. just asked about a dream. And I'm sorry, scientists and doctors and people who understand this stuff out there that better than I do. I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm just going to try. It had to do with, you know, when we dream something, there are brain chemicals that start, you know, circulating. And many times they're designed to help us through potential future problems. You know, when you're little, you dream about falling out of a window or getting chased by a bear or something. And a little kind of a little mark of chemical response happens inside our bodies, which tells us next time we actually are near a window. Be careful. Mm -hmm. This is the theory. I don't know if I'm speaking it correctly, but and this researcher was discovering that many times with actors, that same thing can happen if you're really intensely involved in something, and you're believing it's sort of happening. And I don't mean believing in the way where. It's a clinical problem. It's only, it's only when the curtain goes up until it drops. You know, you really shouldn't be, to my opinion, it would be unhealthy to to wander around as this person. I'm sure other actors do that, and I'm sure they do it very well. So I don't really bring these these traits home. But what I will tell you is, you know, in the times in my life when I've played, for example, Hamlet is a good example. I I was lucky enough to play that three times, and that's a really long performance. And sometimes on a matinee day, you're doing two three-hour performances back-to-back, and this person is going through a range of things from self-loathing to suicidal thoughts to hatred of people around him to envy to all kinds of, you know, we could we could analyze that a character like that forever. But when you're swimming around in those waters for a long time across a rehearsal period or maybe, let's say, six hours of performance during a day, it can't help but sort of... I don't know. Those chemicals are there and you're feeling a bit, you know, you're not feeling <laughs> fully upbeat or yourself. So I know there are times when when I'm working on something where I can feel a little emotional change in me or something like that. It's yeah. not, though, I believe it's not I, I don't come home and go, oh, I can't believe I lost that patient on the table today. It's not it's not like that. You struggle through it enough times as they're
0: filming it that you maybe have a little bit of a a residue of the feeling. Has there been a role, I have my own guess on this one, but is there a role that gives you credibility with your kids where they're like, uh, yeah, that's my dad? Um, any
1: actor you'd ask or any kind of public person you ask who, who does things that the public sees, I think the way life balances itself out in the, in the healthiest way is that they don't really notice or care. You know, I think that's good. <laughs> I don't really, yeah. You know, they don't overvalue yeah. what I do and don't they don't see much of what I do. I mean, they would be allowed to, but... I. I don't know. I just don't know that it. there might come a day. I've been on a couple of kids' shows that they that they watched. And I remember my son being really little, maybe four or something, and I was in something that he was able to see. And um, my wife and I showed it to him, and we watched him really carefully because I wanted to see what he thought. And he was watching, and he was watching, and he was just sort of like suddenly making these kind of concerned faces. And then he it, it didn't say anything. And when it ended, I said, hey, what would you think? And he went, Dad... I didn't know what that meant. And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't look like you. And then he got up and went away and played, which, which is, it didn't concern him too much. He didn't get too excited about it. I was in, briefly, uh, in the Spielberg movie, The BFG, The Big Friendly Giant. Yes. And that's something that my kids have all seen and my nieces and nephews. I, unfortunately, a huge segment of that movie got cut. And the majority of what I was doing was in that cut segment. <laughs> It was in this big sort of 15 minute uh, uh, section that's no longer there. So most of what I did across nine or 10 days working on that film is gone. But um, I'm still there. And, you know, my nieces and nephews, everybody
0: likes that film. So I guess that would be one. Did you have one in mind? You said you had your own idea. The one that stood out for me was Thomas Jefferson in Assassin's Creed. That was the one that I was like, oh,
1: yeah, yeah, that was cool. Honestly, I think if I had been Thomas Jefferson in Minecraft or something more contemporary yes. or Fortnite or something that they're interested in, that would have been cool. I believe, though, my son told me that he and his friends tried to play Assassin's Creed 3. I might be getting this wrong, but I think one of them played as me. And, uh, you know, when you record a character like that, you get to record all these Death options, like alternate ways to die, like uh, yeah, and good, go on without me, and you know you, and so they were sort of killing me off to see how many times they could get a different, <laughs> yeah, death reaction off of me. But I think probably to them, they're like, oh, that's so whatever it was, that's so ten years ago, and they're on to the next, uh, you know, cool game. So yeah, good point. I, I think I think that's a fun one, but neither of them played that game okay. much.
0: <laughs> when you do put. So much effort, like you said, it was nine or ten days filming, which were cut from the the end, of the final edit. In a sense, is it disappointing? And how do you mm-hmm. how do you internalize an experience like that?
1: Yeah, it is disappointing.
0: Although I'll be honest, Dustin,
1: there are times when there are moments that I wasn't really happy with what I did on the day that we filmed it, and yeah. then I was I was pleasantly surprised to see it not make it. <laughs> That's happened too. Okay. So there are times when it's a yeah. you know a blessing. You're like, oh great. That didn't end up in there. I'm, I, didn't, I didn't want that anyway. Yes, of course it's disappointing and you, you work hard. And it was a really, in that particular film that we talked about, it was a really fun section that took intense choreography and there were dozens and dozens of actors involved, including the main cast. And, and Steven Spielberg was, was really hands-on and enjoyed doing it. And we, we all were really proud of it. And I, I really don't know to this day why it got cut. I think probably for time. But mm-hmm. uh, so it is disappointing because you you do want it, the work to to come through. but it goes back to what I said to you earlier about creation versus interpretation. So yes. after it's shot, the director and the editors have to do some interpreting right of what they've been mm-hmm. given, and then they create the film. And so you you learn to um, you have to relinquish control a little bit, and it's the same way a, a writer. Relinquishes control to some extent when they hand the script over to a production company and a director and a bunch of actors. In some mediums, you know, you try to stick really carefully to it. Some shows, for example, some TV shows are what they call syllable perfect, where you can't, if your line is hold on, you can't go, okay, okay, hold on. You can't do that because they want it to be exactly as written. And then others, there's a little bit of flexibility. So I just think if you've been at this long enough, you understand that even after you've done this, amazing work that you're super proud of there's going to be an interpretation you know filter and some of it'll make it and some of it won't and so the short answer is yes it's disappointing but I do understand it you know I get it someone told me audiences like momentum and actors like moments (laughs) and so Ah, we'll do hundreds of amazing moments that are so important to us (laughs) And then, you know, a good editor will go, yeah, that was good, but it doesn't help. It doesn't help move this story forward. We need momentum here. So they cut it and you think, what? That was my single tier silent scream moment or whatever. (laughs) And then,
0: you know, they cut it. So that's fine. So it's that internal struggle between the ego and serving the story. Yeah, that's 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 a a better way to put it. You can
1: tell I haven't I haven't articulated a lot of these um, (laughs) thoughts. Um, You're asking some great
0: questions that are making me think. So thank you. I picked up on how you noticed when you were working with Steven Spielberg, he was talking about there was a a, an effect. He was like, oh, we'll just film this little flag and then we'll put an effect on it Mm -hmm. and it'll blow this up. So you're. Yeah, that's right. I did mention that. And not everyone pays attention to the people that are paying attention. Do you know what I mean by that?
1: Yeah, and it's, well said.
0: Is that part of like what you do? Just trying to figure out the whole process. Like, do you just do your bit, or are you figuring out how the sound works and how the visual effects come in? I think
1: before you flip that switch I mentioned earlier, where you know your character doesn't hopefully doesn't see cameras there because it would be weird for your, yeah. you know, you don't. Yeah. So there is a there is a version of what is sometimes in acting called the window of reality. You know, you have a very small window of reality where you mm-hmm. don't notice what's outside of this kind of perimeter you've created. But the moment you're talking about, I was not on camera, I was off camera. Yeah. And absolutely, I think most people involved in, not, not just film and TV and theater, most people involved in any business, they notice details of that world that other people might not notice. You know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of, uh, when I watched TV and film I have to stop myself. I don't want to annoy the people I'm watching with. But I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, that must have been a really difficult day. When you look at the location and, you know, you sort of see things through the lens of somebody who makes Mm -hmm. the soup, I guess, or you think, oh, look, look at that tracking shot. That's so incredible how they do it. And really, audiences might not notice that stuff. And I'm sure there are many things in, in, say, music production or so many different fields that details that go into it that just go right past me but if you're in those fields you notice the architecture how the such and such was built i think directors fascinate me and cinematographers particularly and honestly the designers you know i'm on set and i'm thinking oh my goodness they created you know the set deck or the props department they create these things that people maybe don't even notice like i'm looking at you um i don't know if the audience knows but we can see each other right now in camera and i'm looking mm-hmm. at that the background behind you and if this were a show, somebody would have had to sort of make a lot of the things that I'm seeing behind you there and goes largely unnoticed. But when you're there in the room and you're picking up these objects and going, they made this, they created
0: this thing. It's quite, quite the departments really are impressive. So much of an enjoyable or a happy life is so much on the relationships that we have, career, mm-hmm. the people that help us along. In a difficult industry, how do you identify the relationships which will, I guess, help you get where you want to go?
1: As I hear that question, I think the best way for me to understand it and and, and answer it is that was an issue that was something I used to have to think about before I figured out my own priorities for life. I'm trying to decide if I like how I said that. Um, <laughs> the I've always known that I wanted a family and that I wanted to be a dad. And I know that choices you make in life, you know, will limit other choices. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's about me choosing relationships that play into my world as an actor, as much as it is about setting priorities for my life where I try to keep my world as an actor from being too much of an impact on the relationships that are important to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I I look at it from the other direction. When I was really young and I was just sort of had myself to think about, I probably threw way too much time and thought and focus and energy into what I do because um, I didn't promise my time, my presence, my attention to anyone else. And um, because I know that I want that aspect of life for me, and not everybody does, and, and, and that's awesome, but because I do... I've got a really strange job, you know, and so it does have an impact on my family and I'm gone a lot. I was, I was away filming and I just flew in last night and I've been away five or six times in the last, I think, two months. So it's, it is tough on my family. And so you do Mm -hmm. what you can to minimize the impact, but I don't really look at it. Like, how do I choose the relationships that are going to benefit or adapt to my circumstances? Having said that, they certainly do end up adapting, right? Mm -hmm. That's just how anyone's
0: job is how do you figure out who to trust mm. Who can you say is like i'm promising you this 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 and this but then option b is saying this is going to take a little bit longer and it might be a little bit rockier but who gets you to trust the process a bit more
1: dustin are you asking about um working relationships like professional like working with directors and things yeah
0: because and maybe i'm not articulating it it very well but it's just like how do you learn what to look for if we can took it like a mentor mentee relationship. Mm-hmm. Like who do you know who can help you, but also what you can give to help that other person?
1: I suppose it's like any other relationship. It's probably something to do with chemistry and personality interaction. And, you know, there's probably yeah. something there, just like your friends or, you know, just yeah. like the guy at the office that you love seeing every morning. And then the guy at the office, you don't love seeing every morning, you know, there, there's, there's, mm you know people click or they don't i suppose i know that i have you 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 talked about mentors i know that i've always had this um maybe lofty goal to have sort of a three-pronged approach to my my work which is also my hobby it's more like my vocation right it's my it's my passion and my work all together so You know, I've always wanted to remain a student of acting. I've always wanted to be a Mm -hmm. practitioner, a professional working actor, and I've always wanted to give back and teach as well. So I try to approach it from all three angles, and I think that's kind of a well-rounded way for me anyways to look at it. And so back to the mentor thing that you talked about, even now I've been working as an actor for a long, long time, and I'm in my mid to late 90s at this point. So, um, But I will still once in a while... You were supposed to laugh when I said mid to late 90s. No. You were completely straight faced. Um, well, no, I thought you were sn- talking about
0: the decade. And then I'm realizing
1: like I it no. completely went over no. my head. No, we don't laugh when it's not funny. And, and you're correct to not laugh. Okay. No. Uh, anyways.
0: No, I'm saying, no I'm, I missed it. That's my fault.
1: Uh, I'm saying I'm an old guy now. And I've been at this for a long time. But even at my um, advanced years, I will still from time to time seek out a great master teacher somewhere that has yeah. something that I'm interested in. And I will go to them, and frequently I've been told, "Oh, you're not 18. What are you doing here?" You know, and I go, "Well, I, I want to be a great student of this, and I, you know, there's a skill set that you possess that I'm fascinated to study and learn about." I, I don't do it as much as I'd like to, but I have done it several times, and and found people, and I've been pretty lucky. They do tend to click, at least so far. I'll come back on the podcast if I find some that don't go well, okay. and I'll, I'll okay. let you know.
0: Yeah. I don't think you and I can have an interview and not bring up Yellowstone, which I am a fan of. I am very, very excited about the upcoming season. Me too. (laughs) I just wanted to know, has there been an opportunity for you to learn how to cowboy on the set? No, unfortunately.
1: I auditioned for this great modern Western, and I thought, here we go. Finally, people will recognize the real cowboy in me. Nope. (laughs) I remember my agent telling me that I got a part in Fifty Shades Freed and I was like, okay, my big nude scene coming. Nope, they didn't let me yeah. do that either. So no. it's not always what you think it's going to be. But no, you know, I, I I certainly go to the ranch. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we were doing season four, the the, the production created all these amazing opportunities for the cast and crew because we, we this was early days, no vaccinations, and we were creating these zones and these... The cast and crew were sort of bubbling together in a couple of hotels where no, nobody else, we couldn't socialize outside of it. So they would create these amazing weekends for us where they would do horseback riding and and whitewater rafting in Montana. And uh, they would do huge barbecues at the ranch, the one that you see on the show. And they would bring in country singers, you know, Grammy-nominated country singers from Nashville would come in and entertain. And um, if you watch the show, the, the Dutton family chef is Gator. He's actually our on set chef, he actually cooks for the ah. cast and crew and they just put him into the role. And so Gator would do this amazing barbecue and, and everybody would get together. So I've spent a lot of time on that ranch and I get, I love the horses and I love being around them. And I, um, I've certainly, you know, some people have seen, if you saw season three, I got to film with some horses, but I wasn't on the horse, unfortunately. So no, the short regretful and lamented answer is no, I haven't been allowed to cowboy at all. I just, get, I just get to annoy the cowboys, basically.
0: <laughs> but uh, as Ellis Steele, that scene where you came in, where you're, you're walking down the hill, like, it is very well done how you Mm -hmm. are not in your element, and they perceive you as a threat right away. And it Mm -hmm. sets up the entire conflict for the next while. It's just, it is a great scene. And then Rip charges at you with a horse. Like, Mm -hmm, so I did mm -hmm. have a question about that is like, do you guys just turn it off? Are you like, dude, you just ran at me with a horse? Like, I need a minute before Uh. we can have lunch.
1: First, as far as that scene is concerned, uh, th- thank you. I love that scene too, and I can't take yeah. any credit other than just what I could do in the moment, but it's all Taylor Sheridan uh, who wrote it and Stephen Kay who directed it. The, the image of eight or nine you know, lawyers and investors in suits at the top of a ridge in the middle of this pristine, untouched land is just a wonderful, stark contrast that you don't see much. And I, I don't think I've ever seen that on film before. And even when we did it, I knew I was like, this is going to look fantastic for a couple of reasons, because A, how out of place we look. And that really is a major message about this idea of land development. That that to me was sort of a, a still image, you know, eight of us or 10 of us coming up over the ridge wearing you know expensive suits and Italian yeah. shoes, stumbling over rocks and snake holes and things like that it's really a metaphor for the whole idea of developing this pristine land and turning it into a condo complex or a casino or a resort or something. So it's a brilliant idea, and I think it was executed really well by Steven and the cinematographers. To get to your question about, Cole Hauser, who plays Rip, is a fantastic actor and a really great guy, and he came up with that. That wasn't scripted. He just kind of did it, and you just sort of go with it, The way the camera was set up, and he's a very smart actor, he's been doing this for a long time, we could both tell it was going to look like he was closer than he was. I mean, I still had a good, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet even between he and I, but you sort of don't know that when you're watching it. So I just reacted naturally as I I believe the character would. He tried Mm -hmm. to kind of keep his cool and then showed how he really felt the minute they rode away. But no, there's no residual after effects on something like that. I knew what he was doing, and I thought it was brilliant. The director loved it. We all loved it. I just thought, in fact, I think we high-fived because I was like, that's going to be a cool moment. And in fact, we went right to talking about how we worked together in the 90s. Like I worked with him on something in, I think it was 92 or 93, and we were sort of reminiscing about that. We both go back quite a ways, So yeah, no no residual
0: stuff. We're just all happy to make you know, to do something awesome yeah. that's gonna look cool when, yeah. when the thing comes out. Yeah. I know you were talking about playing villains, and Ellis isn't necessarily evil per se, but I he agree has with a does you, Dustin. Thank you. He's he misunderstood. Has, but Exactly, but he has a <laughs> certain set of weapons, like a certain like he's got a gentleman's arsenal of lawyers and government officials and bribes that you don't necessarily see he's got a separation between the actual evil there's other people in the show that do bad things who kill people ellis doesn't do that directly right i think it was near the end of the fourth season Mm -hmm. where your character is told your instincts don't work here your weapons don't don't work and i'm not asking you to give away any secrets or plot Mm -hmm. developments but Does Ellis have an opportunity to grow? Does he see the error of his ways or does he learn a whole new set of operations? Like, how do I actually fight this fight? You know, I understand that
1: Ellis Steele in the world of Yellowstone is considered an antagonist because, because he is a threat to the way of life of these characters, this family that we all have grown to care about, right? We care about our protagonists and we want their will to be done. So this guy comes in and represents an obstacle to that. Um, so he is an antagonist, but you're right. He's not a villain. In fact, these heroes that we love so much are the ones that, yeah. you know, spoiler, alert, kill people, right? And nothing that he has done is illegal, um, you could argue that there's you know it's it's bad judgment to to develop the land. there's a so there's a moral question maybe there. Mm-hmm. but he's really in my mind, just quite good at his job and he's yeah. just doing what he's been hired to do. Now, if there's anything a little uh, slippery about what he's doing, I, I recognize right away when I first read the script and this would have been before I auditioned for the role that one of the things you mentioned his arsenal, and this might not be really apparent to people, but that's OK, because we hopefully don't make these things kind of so overt that they hammer you over the head. But I recognize right away that he is good at being whoever he needs to be, depending on who he's with. So if you saw him in that first scene on the ridge with the guys, he was saying, hey, buddies, how are you? Let's have yeah, lunch, yeah. you know, we did-da-da-da. and a smiley and kind of. You know, ah, a little bit. The next time you saw him was with Chairman Rainwater, and he was quite, quite intense, quite judgmental, possibly even racist. That you could argue, mm. depending on on your perspective on the scene, he was very, very dismissive of Chairman Rainwater, saying, "Why don't you get your lawyer and let the adults talk?" You know, it was it was very, mm. very smug. And then you saw him later with. The governor and he was straight-A student. Nice to see you. I've got all my homework mm-hmm. done. All my facts are laid out. And he was very polite and very cordial. And And I have sort of continued to follow that depending on who he's with. I think the way he sees his work is a people job. And I think he learns to adapt to whoever he's with. Now, to some extent, we all do that, but I've never really mm-hmm. approached the character as that as being one of the core ideas that I start with. And I have done that with him. So does he have a chance to grow I think so. I think this family has really given him a run for his money. And I think he and and his company, and for the listener who doesn't watch the show, it's called Market Equities. I think they have deeply underestimated the people of Montana and the relationship to the land. So in that way, he has adapted, I guess you could call that a type of growth. Mm -hmm. Not sure if that answers your question, but I I definitely see the, the continuing roller coaster as something that he's starting to dig in his heels, as is the people that he works with. And he's saying, okay. And there's there there tends to be now in season four and possibly in upcoming seasons, there's a bit of, you know, gloves have to come off. If this is how it's gonna be, this is how it's gonna be. So um, different tactics, you know, have been at play, at least in season
0: four, for sure. So that would be the kind of growth. I would call it adaptation. Because then I even see how you have to, uh, I believe it's Jackie Weaver who plays Caroline. Yes, the great. And then you are suddenly, it almost looks like you are the getter of coffee for her. Mm. You're her, her assistant rather than someone like a, that is helping move this process forward. It's a multifaceted character.
1: Yeah, and I think, to my mind, sometimes those are just the scenes you see. There are other things he's clearly doing. At the beginning of season three, you didn't know who Ellis was working for. And there was an awful lot of, you know, just wait till my boss gets here. You know, there was a lot of that. And then my my boss showed up in the form of Willa Hayes, played by Karen Pittman, that many people Mm -hmm. know from The Morning Show and, and a million other things. And then, you know, before long, you started to go, now wait, is he working for her or is he working for the Rourke character played by Josh Holloway uh, who a lot of us Mm -hmm. know from Lost and then they're gone and now he's working for this other person and so I think that's another form of the adaptation right he's serving different masters at different times and they're expecting different things of him but you're right beginning of season four you see him like fetching her
0: bags at the airport and yeah you know sort of sighing as she says get so-and-so on the phone you know this kind of thing yeah most of the people in my circle are big fans of Yellowstone. Which means they we hate me, t- so don't tell them you talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, permit me to ask you an inappropriate question here, because the discussions around Yellowstone are not so much about the plot necessarily, but I come home and it's just like, ooh, my friends really love Rip. They like this strong-willed, very masculine character. Yep. And then the list keeps going. Oh, then there's casey and then there's walker and then there's colby and then there's like it is just a whole casting characters that that's is true. arousing imaginations for lack of a better word mm-hmm. uh so where do you where would you rank your character <laughs> where, where, <laughs> where, where 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 would ellis Steele oh, come in in terms of like uh, arousing I, yes. arousing what yes
1: i i don't know that ellis ranks on that scale uh, he doesn't seem to to exist on that plane you know that's not a it's interesting when you play somebody, you know, listen, I love those characters too. I think Rip yeah. is one of the greatest TV characters ever created. And that's Taylor, that's Cole Hauser, yeah. and that's the directors. And even the people, you know, uh, Janetta Boone, who dresses him, it's, come on, he's the coolest cowboy ever, right? So it's a lot of people that create that character. It's, he's he's really hard to not like, you know, he's got all the right qualities and he doesn't worry about the stuff that doesn't matter. And he fights for the good, and he fights for those that, he, that are important to him. One of the hard things when you do play antagonists, as I do so frequently, is very little time is invested to give them a human life outside. You don't see Ellis' family. You don't see him on the weekend with his buddies. You don't see the, the hobbies he likes or the charities he supports or the, the baseball team he goes to see. You don't really see a lot of what we think of as humanizing qualities. And, and I'm not lamenting that. That's not really what we necessarily want for our antagonists. In a, in a really great sort of, I would say, um, if you watch a great film or, or you know, something that's epic on the scale of like a Marvel movie, they will frequently give their chief antagonist an origin story which gives you a little bit of empathy for what they went through. You know, their father left them or something. And then you can sort of, the people who like villains, they will side with them a little bit. A lot of times, though, the villain doesn't, there's no time for that in this storytelling process. And honestly, I don't know who watching this show would be interested in seeing Ellis on his weekend. It doesn't really help tell the story that these creators and these audiences want to see. So... I don't think he does rank on the scale that you're asking about. Um, <laughs> I don't think that that's, we haven't gotten to see those sides of him. He functions as a different part of the storytelling process. Now, have I thought of those sides of him? Absolutely, right? I have to sort of make him a full person to myself. But in terms of watching the show, I couldn't sort of place him on the RIP. He doesn't even, he's not even on the same scale as RIP, right? Because he doesn't, You know. Yeah. Yeah. you know, he just doesn't have that.
0: That side doesn't get told. <laughs> um, John, I, I am being cognizant of the time. Um, I appreciate your, your answer to that. I guess you could say it's a silly question. But no, it's thank great. You. It's a great question. Um, all, your, all your questions have been great. I'm, I'm, I'm well, afraid my you. answers are so long that you've only gotten three questions in, but you know what? They've been great. <laughs> no, no. People are here to listen to you. I do just have a couple of fun ones to end off with. So the show is called Kook Jester. So when you hear the term kook what pops to mind?
1: I think of um, fun, fun, lighthearted. Yeah, I think so. That's like, workable. I
0: like can work you, that. you crazy, you, crazy kook you. Was that the intention of that, of that word? Well, yeah, it depends on your perspective because the dictionary kind of gives you like this crazy outside of the norm who is not behaving according to convention and what is expected by society. And then the surfing culture has taken it and been like, you just get in the way on the waves, kind of thing. So, oh, I've, is that what I'm that means? Trying to, yeah. So, if you call if you're called a kook and you're surfing, you are not a good person. Oh man! But I am looking to build this out as like a it's a good thing. Like you got to embrace your inner kook as far as getting to where you want to go.
1: You just outed me as not being um, down with, with surf culture in a way that I wish people would think I am. I'm going to I'm gonna answer that question again. Oh, kook? Yeah, well, to me, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That's like when you're out on a wave, someone gets in your way, it's total kook. Total oh, yeah, kook. yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, kook, you said. Sorry, I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, I frequently feel like a kook. I can say that. The non-surfer, uh, the non-surfing a kook. Uh, and the last one has to do with music, and I ask a version of this to everybody. So, you play. If we're looking at the misunderstood bad guy characters, do you have a like a go-to playlist or song that just gets you into the evil mindset?
1: Great question. The word evil. I'm not so sure about that, but um, but I will say it. <sighs> I remember being a really young actor. At a certain age, you're trying to find the answer. Like, how do I do this, right? I don't mm-hmm. care what it is you do. How do I pitch the perfect ball? How do I create the perfect performance? Or how do I build the most amazing car? And you're looking for the answers. I, I think, at least for me, when I was young, I thought, okay, there's going to be a set of answers. And then once I get them, I'm going to know how to do it. And I remember reading an interview with Robert De Niro and he, someone asked him, how do you prepare for a role? And I remember him saying... It just depends on the character. You know, sometimes I have to really live in it and swim around in it all day and keep the emotions at the front of my, you know, my, my, myself and really invest in, you know, dress like the guy at home. And he, he said, other times I'm just kind of relaxed in my trailer and I read the paper and then I go to work. And I remember really at that age not liking that answer. I was like, No. I need, uh, I need I need. to know the, the key to the, to the castle. I need the wisdom, yeah. the, the nugget of, of, of brilliance that's going to... I thought, oh, if he just answers that, I can figure out how to do this. But the older I get, the more I understand his answer. And so finally, mm-hmm. to answer your question, it depends. It depends. There are shows that I definitely use music for. And I use music for many of my characters. There are shows that I don't... It really depends on that creative versus interpretive side that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. There are times when I understand him immediately and the sort of intentions that he has, and I can go right into them, and I don't need outside stimuli to help me find that. And there are times when I really need to create a tone or a mood for myself. So there isn't one song, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I I would have to think of a specific character I've played and try to remember what song really tipped me off to understanding him. So it's not an easy answer because it changes every
0: time. And I guess um, that's because I'm a kook. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer how you answered that question. And I think that's a great spot to end. So. John, I want to thank you very much for making the time. I know you're busy uh, late Friday afternoon here. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to answer questions. And
1: it was nice to get to know you a little bit better. You, so too. you too, Dustin. Thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed this. This was a fun conversation. And um, I know I said I don't necessarily enjoy being uh, do th- doing things as me, public things, but this was a blast. I really had a great uh, time talking to you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye-bye.